Good evening, everyone. Per last week, we've been talking about prosthetics. It was all about limb prostheses last week, but this week we're going to talk about joints. We already went over the ancient history of prosthetics, so let's just get started with the newer stuff. Let's start in 1890 in Germany with Themistocles Gluck, an absolute pioneer in joint replacement. Gluck's original background was actually in transplantation, and he did experiments involving transplanting tendons and nerves. He began implanting foreign materials from there, which is how he got interested in artificial joints. His earliest work involved fixing an injured soldier's broken leg by screwing two steel plates to the bone. He was amazed at how early the injured limb could resume movement and resolved to further experiment. Gluck tried out all kinds of materials early on in animal trials, aluminum, wood, glass, and steel, but eventually opted for ivory, perhaps influenced by the fact that the Ivory Coast was then a German colony. He built artificial bones out of ivory, and then used them to fix bone defects in animals. Gluck also experimented with attachment directly to the skeleton using bone cement, experimenting with a variety of chemical compositions. His work predates that of Sir John Charnley, who is more famously known for his bone cement, by about 65 years. Within a few years, Gluck had replaced knees, wrists, and elbows, making his artificial joints out of ivory with extremely good short-term results. All this in the 19th century. Unfortunately, Gluck was such a pioneer that he was actually too far ahead of his time. Even if he could build effective prostheses, we were still figuring out how bone infections would affect artificial joints. Gluck was a rigid practitioner of aseptic technique, which is great, but he often gave patients artificial joints as treatment for tuberculosis infections of those joints. Even with the replacement, the infection usually returned, causing severe complications. He was set to present his work in 1890, but his colleagues, fearing embarrassment due to the infections, and frankly completely missing the revolutionary nature of his work, fought him tooth and nail. His former teacher wrote to him, quote, As the leader of German surgery, I cannot allow that you discredit German science in front of a platform of international surgical specialists. My pupils and I will fight you with all means. Harsh, and also probably terrible for the development of artificial joints as a whole. If Gluck's work had been continued, I have no doubt technological progression in this episode would be even faster. Gluck decided not to present at the international conference, and his work is unfortunately often overlooked to this very day, as a result of this major setback. Gluck wasn't the only pioneer, but admittedly he was the earliest. One of the more famous cases is in late 19th century France, when Jules-Emile Payan, a surgeon, was examining a poor baker named Jules Pédou. The patient had a soldier infected with tuberculosis, which, if left untreated, would surely have killed him. At the time, amputation was the standard treatment for such an ailment, and Payan did initially recommend that. However, the patient stalwartly refused, saying he would rather die than live with one arm, especially considering he needed both arms to make his living. Better to die now than to slowly starve to death later, by his argument, which is morbid, but fair. Payan decided he was up to the challenge. Instead of amputation, first he cleared away the infected tissue, lest it continue to spread and kill the patient. Payan exposed the bone with a long cut on the patient's upper arm, and then cleared away the infected bone manually. The patient survived that, and recovered within a few days, but now did not have a functional arm, just one without a bone in it, which must have been a very strange feeling. 
That's what the second operation was for. Payan had heard of temporary implants made of platinum used in facial reconstruction. He asked a dentist friend of his, Dr. Michaels, to make him a shoulder joint that would be as inert as possible with similar materials or construction, and Michaels made a new joint as best he could. It started with a rubber ball. That ball had two platinum rings attached to it at right angles to each other to actually allow for two directions of movement, one horizontal and one vertical. The rings were attached into the patient's shoulder socket, while the second ring was attached to a platinum tube. Finally, that tube replaced the top of the patient's arm bone to allow for a theoretically functional arm. I've included a picture in the show notes. Certainly not bad for the 19th century. Shortly after the first surgery, Payan reopened the earlier incision and added in his contraption. After 12 days, the patient was able to walk around again, and then was discharged after gaining 35 pounds, however long that took. Payan did not record how well the arm worked, unfortunately, but he did send the patient off and didn't hear anything back for another year, which is kind of remarkable, so it must have worked at least decently. In 1897, Payan published a follow-up report on this patient. Two years later, the patient had come back with a fistula, or a hole, in his upper arm that continually leaked pus. Definitely worth a checkup. Payan had the arm x-rayed, which was fancy new technology at the time, and decided to remove the prosthesis. The bone had begun to grow back around the prosthesis, but Payan pressed forward anyway. His records don't detail what happened after that, but he did present his work at the French Academy of Medicine, so at the very least, he thought it went okay. Regardless of the end outcome, it was incredibly pioneering work at the time, and I'm honestly surprised the artificial shoulder lasted even two years. Payan's operation was ultimately probably more harmful than beneficial. The pain from the initial infection most likely remained, and as the bone had grown into the prosthetic shoulder, the patient's shoulder probably became nearly useless. But it was nonetheless pioneering, and the basic ideas laid down by Payan and Gluck carry over today. I frankly find it incredible that such complex surgeries were performed so early on at all. The next big advance I want to talk about came in 1925, when American surgeon Marius Smith-Peterson developed a hip joint made from glass, which is a nice, smooth surface for a leg bone to rotate in. Glass is also actually biocompatible, and can be molded easily to fit specific patients, but also it's glass. The poor patient fitted with the prosthetic learned the hard way when their implant could not handle the amount of force in the hip joint, and they ended up with a shattered glass hip. Almost certainly, this must have been incredibly painful and required another surgery to remove. A valuable lesson was learned, though, and Smith-Peterson, along with Philip Wiles, helped to run trials on hip replacements constructed of stainless steel, a much more common material today for such replacements, and also just a bit sturdier than glass. They used screws and bolts to hold it in place, but unfortunately, screws and bolts will also slowly loosen over time, at least when your operating technique is a little on the messier side, which it was back then. You can imagine that having your joints loosen over time is a bit of an issue. Basically though, this pattern covers a lot of the advances in joint replacements. Creating the joints themselves was mostly set, and of course joint replacement surgery benefited from other technological advances like antibiotics and aseptic technique, but the specific advances for joint replacements often came from advances in materials. We learned fairly early on that rubber isn't hard enough, while ivory and wood actually slowly dissolve in the body. We've now talked about glass, which is clearly too fragile, and moved on to steel. 
Metal-on-metal prostheses were first used regularly by an English surgeon named George McKee. These were artificial joints that had both sides of the joint replaced with metal, and was extremely common all the way into the 1970s. The concern with metal-on-metal joints is something called metallosis. As it turns out, when you rub metal-on-metal for a long time, it can generate ions and little shavings that can damage tissues and potentially cause cancer. Not great, but at least the joints weren't shattering. Concerns about metallosis led to the rise of two new materials for joints. Plastics, specifically polyethylene, and ceramics. Both were introduced in the 70s, and have some more pros and cons. Polyethylene, which you've almost certainly encountered in the form of grocery bags or bottles, also wears down like metal does from the friction. It doesn't produce ions, though, but instead just plastic debris. That causes the body to react and damages the implant. I guess just damage is better than damage and cancer risk, like from the metal implants, but still not great. Ceramics were introduced in the 70s, too, by Pierre Boutin, and became very popular in Central Europe. The United States and the UK rarely use ceramic implants, though, even to this day, despite numerous advantages. Ceramic-based prosthetic joints are hard, resistant to scratching, and do generate debris, but as far as we know, this debris, finally, doesn't seem to have any negative effects on the body. It's also easier to lubricate, leading to better function. Why the lower adaptation in some parts, then? One big reason, money. Ceramics are, frankly, expensive. Early on, too, the first generation of ceramic implants could be chipped, especially during the implantation surgery, which would cause a lot of havoc in the patient if unnoticed. I'm sure even now, scientists are still hard at work improving the materials and properties of joint replacements. At the very least, we've come a long, long way from Gluck or Payan's days. Today, artificial joints have various sizes for each part of the joint, and are measured and assembled during the operation. The individual components are joined to the patient's bone with screws or cement. Over 600,000 knee replacements and over 300,000 hip replacements are done in the United States each year, and that's just two major joints and one country. Prosthetic joints aren't perfect, but they're pretty routine these days, greatly improve patient lives, and they last for years. Next week, we talk about my last planned topic, and for sure the most recent, robotic surgery. As per usual, thank you to my editor, Jojo Tang, my cover artist, Angie Lee, and Muse Open for our music. And thank you, my dear listener, for taking a listen. If you want to contact me, use the links in the show notes, and if you like what you hear, please tell a friend or leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.